Yeah. I feel like, Mr. Potter, I need this loan. Said <laughs> But yes, you're Mr. Potter. I, I, I like that. Um, it's great to be here at the University of Louisville's Kentucky Author Forum. It's great to be in Kentucky, the home of Connect, which proves healthcare reform can work. Um, and Thanks for that. And it's great to be with uh, Chris Matthews uh, to talk about his book. I always come to Louisville when I can, but I would have gone anywhere because this may be my only opportunity ever on television to interrupt Chris Matthews. <laughs> and I, am, uh, I intend to uh, take uh, every advantage. Chris, I found in some ways the most interesting thing about the book uh, the early part where you talked about yourself. I learned things about you that I didn't know before. For mm. example, I didn't know that you had worked as a cop on Capitol mm. Hill right. in order to get your first job. I didn't know that you had run for Congress mm. and got 23% uh, percent of the vote. A wise 23%. I was young. Tell me about both of those experiences. I think people would like to hear that. Well, uh, many of the politicians you would have grilled would love to know what it was like to well, get 23%. Uh, being Irish, I had to be a cop once. You know, I had to get that part <laughs> in. Uh, I, uh, I, came, I was in a Peace Corps. I came back from Africa. I went knocking on doors on Capitol Hill looking for a job. And I started with all the Irish Catholics from the Northeast because I thought Holy Cross, where I went to college, and... The Peace Corps added up to that best connection, and I tried all them. And then I ended up almost running out of money, and I ended up with um, going to a congressman from New Jersey, whose name I won't mention, but I alluded to him in the book. And he was ready to hire me, this guy. He was, he was a very impressive Irish guy, Irish Catholic guy. And he, it turned out that he had had a little problem. They had found a body in his basement. <laughs> That's, let, me, let me read this, my first interruption. My first brush with trouble. One concern, uh, one concern was the body of a loan shark discovered in his basement. Then Chris goes on, call me a softy, but I thought then and I think now that he wanted to spare me his emerging troubles. Yeah. How compassionate of you. I did think so. I thought that when he passed the word to his AA, his top aide, that he couldn't work it out, he had a lot of other problems. And uh, he's still alive, a good guy, but he has some problems in, in the legal department. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I ended up getting a job with the top aide to Frank Moss, who was the last liberal senator from Utah. And he was a young Mormon guy, Wayne Owens, who I got to be great friends with. And after a tryout where I had to do some incredibly complicated tax law explanation to the wife of the, of the Utah Symphony director, uh, music director, I had to come up with some incredibly complicated answer. And after I answered it and brilliantly typed it out and it looked brilliant, he said, I got a job for you, Capitol Police. Now, the, the, the way it worked was I'd work as a cop from 3 o'clock to 11 o'clock at night guarding the Capitol. And with a gun, the whole thing. I carried a Smith & Weston 38 <laughs> police special. And my wrote. favorite assignment was guarding a bunch of papers that were buried up in the Capitol building itself. And I was to stand in front of this door and make sure nobody got in this door. And I had a gun. And it was the Pentagon Papers. Oh, wow. <laughs> Bottom line, they'd already appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to make sure nobody else got them. <laughs> <laughs> and By that was way, my first job, yeah. But I ended up after three months uh, being a full-time legislative assistant. It didn't take long because I'd, I'd sit down in the basement of the Capitol with my gun and my uniform and my short hair, and I'd study the congressional record, learn how to write a speech. So pretty quick, I was writing speeches. So. You are. And I, the, by the way, in the introduction, I was surprised it, it wasn't pointed out. I was, a, I was a presidential speechwriter with Jimmy Carter right to the end. So I had that other job, which I was very proud well, of. Well, I want to mention that, but I just, there was, I was very affected by this. You said a fellow cop, you talk about how this experience was important to you. You wrote, a fellow cop, a West Virginian named Leroy Taylor, one night posed me a question. Chris, he said, can you tell me why the little man loves his country? And I wondered at the question itself and why he was offering it. And he explained it all with his answer, because it's all he's got, he said softly. It was, a, it was so forgettable. It was, to me, I'll never forget it. It's just, it was a statement of why the little guy is often more patriotic than the rich guy. Because his country, and often the, guy, the country he fought for in the wars, uh, is, is who he is. It's, it isn't complicated. It doesn't have a lot of holdings and complicated relationships and beautiful family and all this stuff and treasury. But he has his patriotism. And I got it. And I think a lot of elite types don't get it. 
Well, and they, it, they didn't understand what real gut patriotism is. It's and it reminded me be. of something Tip said later in the book, which we'll get to. But uh, oh, the, I know the, scene at the scene at the Harvard Yard to, that, that, he, that you quote him on, which is, well, well let's just jump to that. Okay. Um, you know, that, uh, that you, one of the things that comes out in Chris's book is this real sense of um, uh, not class hatred, but class awareness from oh. Tip O'Neill. And Chris tells a story that uh, Tip well, O'Neill Well, Tip O'Neill was said, a townie, if you will. Yeah. Somebody who lived near Harvard, but had nothing to do with it. He had, he had been a, townie, a, a day hop at Boston College, back when it was a day hop college, back in the 30s. And he, uh, he lived way up, it was at um, uh, Commonwealth Avenue, all the way up there, and pretty North far Cambridge, away. Cambridge, But right? close enough to know what the school at Harvard looked like and what it meant in terms of the elite. And he had a job cutting the lawn with the shears, not with a lawnmower, even a hand mower. He had the shears, so he would sit around around the trees and, and clip around the trees. You know, that kind of a job, the trimming job. And he had a sort of an overseer who was like a Simon Legree character who would go around and say, off your ass, O'Neill. So he, even, he couldn't even sit down while he did <laughs> Be on his knees while he clipped. And all this time, get this very Dickensian notion of this local kid, probably overweight, a, a regular kid for the neighborhood, clipping away during the uh, prohibition period and looking over at the tent on the Harvard Yard where they were celebrating the graduation with all the guys in their linen suits, as he put it, with their uh, boater hats on, their skimmer hats on, drinking champagne in the middle of prohibition shamelessly, without fear. And he said that really bugged him. He said these guys were so elite that they could openly break the, break the law and just do it with impunity. And he said, someday, he said, I'm going to have people from my crowd who get into this school. It was, it was really out of Dickens. It was something. That, that, no, that was a great moment in the book. At the beginning, you talk about election night, uh, 1980, the whole lead up to Reagan's <laughs> election and flying around Wasn't with that the best? Jimmy Carter. Wasn't that the best stuff in a book? I, th I want to write action. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't always do it. He reviews himself, you know, you too. You don't understand. You know? <laughs> no, I like writing action. I, like, I write, you know, description. But when you can write action, it's great. You know, it's like Bobby Dick. And we're talking about... They had getting the word we'd lost on the plane, and we had just come out of Seattle, and Carter had gotten a good speech. Finally, and Rick Hertzberg, the chief speechwriter, said, Mr. President, you finally got the stump speech down, and this is the last speech of the campaign. <laughs> and, 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 and then he got, has got to go in, and it's 4 o'clock in the morning in D.C., and, we're, and Carter got the word right to his face from Pat Cadell, the pollster, that he'd lost, he was going to lose by 10. I mean, it's just crumbling news to come right if you're coming off the high of a big speech. And uh, we were all... And then we spent the next several hours flying to planes, uh, getting ready to have the president at least say something that would save the House and the Senate. He was aware of the need to try to save the Congress. He was a party guy more than people thought. And, and Jody Powell, who has died since, was really a soldier that night. Rick Hertzberg said Jody's a soldier because he had been with him from the very beginning. And all he cared about was getting him through that night. And, and there's a great line, I thought, during the president's last speech out in Seattle in this big airport hangar. Great residence, by the way. I say, always give a speech in an airport hangar because you get that great echo. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, uh, there's, uh, I asked Jody where we're going to go tonight and overnight tonight. He said, well, there's no tonight tonight, which I thought was very poetic because it's, we're going right back to vote and the, the next day is going to loom before us. And you're going to either be president or not. And uh, it's pretty dramatic stuff. And in the meantime, there was this last hope that the hostages yeah. might be released, and then it all. I can sense apart. the air coming out of the bag that Sunday afternoon when the mullahs decided to pull our chain one more time, and they said they set the conditions. And apparently, they were very complicated. They had to do with unfreezing the money. It's like the stuff we're going through now with Iran. You know, the same kind of what are we going to release? How much money are we going to release from, in terms of this, the uh, frozen money? And it was too complicated to get done by election day, and the Carter was going to lose. It was terrible, but it happened. And you say something about the size of Reagan's victory. He won by a landslide. Carried Massachusetts. Took the your state. Yes, I'm, your Commonwealth. Uh, indeed. Um, big John Not Anderson with your help, vote. I don't and, think. Uh, not with my help. Um, <laughs> John Anderson got a huge vote in Massachusetts. I really don't like John Anderson voters. I, I mean, you know, don't tell me. I know there's a bunch here, but don't tell me I voted for Anderson. I'm better than you. You know, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't buy that. You know, you caused Reagan, so don't tell me. You know. You really have to choose. I, I hate to say this, but I had the same view at the time. The, of what, uh, Anderson voters? Yeah. That, yeah that, it's just uh, dodging. You it's saw dodging what the, the stakes were. Um, oh, one other thing i got to ask you, because I had similar experience. You grew up in a Republican family, and Gene McCarthy 
uh, and his campaign yeah. uh, sort of change your mind about things? I've always loved Gene McCarthy for many reasons, one of which is people wonder what EJ stands for. Well, then you grew up in a Republican I, family. I grew up in a Republican yeah, I you family. Uh, French I, Canadians I, were Republican for a long like time. It's like Italians in Philly. Like, exactly Italians right. in Philly. Uh, uh, in fact, the first ethnic group to vote for Republicans were the Italians of New York in 68. I love that stuff. The, I, I, had, a, uh, I the, had a great uh, cousin who ran on the Republican ticket in Massachusetts in 1934, and the poor man died of a heart attack, which you probably would do if you were running on a Republican yeah. ticket. He was, my but, dad was always but Volpe won. felt terrible. Volpe won. Oh, yeah. No, later on, uh, a lot of Republicans What was the question again? Uh, <laughs> you are... Republican oh, yeah, I think, and Gene McCarthy. Just like uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, who probably will run for president, uh, she had the same transition I had in many ways. Uh, back in the early 60s, some people probably like this, Barry Goldwater had a tremendous appeal to us as, as young people. He was a libertarian. He turned out to be real libertarian when he got older on, on marriage equality and, and all kinds of things, abortion rights. Very much a, a live and let live kind of guy. That had a tremendous appeal to young people. And I only got over that by thinking, my dad would say to me, and even as a Republican, hey, we need Social Security. We need these institutions because, because otherwise people will, will get old and be poor and we'll have to pay for them through welfare. So it's much better you force the people to save through Social Security so they can be self-reliant. My dad would argue that. So don't give me this libertarian stuff, how we live and let live. And the same thing with this, with the, with this civil rights issue of 64. Sure, if you had been a strict constitutionalist, it would have to go through an amendment, amendment of the Constitution, but they used the Interstate Commerce Clause, they stretched it, and it got done. The conservatives didn't like that. Goldwater didn't like that. But you know what? We had to do it. Because if we'd waited around for the South to approve, to approve uh, civil rights, it wouldn't be done, probably. So a lot of these no. things, it wouldn't have gotten done. So a lot of these things were sort of liberal solutions. With, they have conservative, conservative problems. McCarthy came along as a thoughtful guy, a professor. He wasn't one of these big blah, blah, blah guys like Hubert Humphrey. He was, he was intellectual. He was like a college professor you really wanted to have. And he was underspoken, he was poetic, he was dry, he was wry, he was all the good Irish things. I think he, I think he said he was I more got some Protestants Catholic. in the first row, yeah. No, I'm just I kidding. think he said he was more Catholic than Kennedy, more intellectual than Stevenson, and more liberal than Humphrey. And he so, said it himself. Yes, himself, yeah. Yeah, well, I really liked Gene McCarthy. We were all clean for Gene. And, uh, and as Hillary went through the same transition, Goldwater girl with the sash and everything to being a McCarthy person, whereas Bill was a Bobby person. And people of my generation, like the people here tonight are my generation, you always know who the Bobby people were and who the Gene people were. It is so interesting because you always, where were you Gene or you were Bobby? Now, and the worst thing Gene McCarthy ever said, and I loved him, was he said- Were you a Gene guy? Students, I, was, I was torn by the end between the two of them. Where were you in the beginning? The, uh, Gene guy. Because um, <laughs> he was the, there in the beginning. I was still a Republican then, but that's okay, a long right, conversation. Right. But Gene was the guy who really got to me first, and Bobby got to me later. But Gene McCarthy once said that the, well, he's got the B students and I got the A students, uh, yeah. which I really disliked, A, because of the elitism, and B, because if you want to win, uh, you more better B get students. the B students. But you are an A student. What? I, I just heard it in the introduction. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, <laughs> no, no, I'm uh, innocent of that. By the way, there was, a, there was a very poignant interview that the great Roger Mudd, and he was a great re reporter, journalist, he was interviewing Bobby Kennedy. A lot of people here probably remember it. He was in an airport term, one of those things, you, the rows of seats all tied together in the airport waiting rooms, like they still are. And he was sitting in a row of these seats, and it was just he and Bobby. And he was saying, Bobby, do you, do, do you miss the fact that you don't have all those students, that they're all for Gene? Because he got in late, remember? And it was chilling because Bobby just said, yeah, I miss him. I wish I had him. He was a great, like Mud's interviews were all great. And uh, that was... No, and he loved students, and you saw that in that South Africa speech that Bobby The gave. day of... Uh, but yeah. we could talk about Bobby no, Kennedy that's the day all of, That was the day of affirmation yeah. speech, which is the one at his graveside. The, right, the no, but I mean, all his life, students uh, mattered to him, and that would be something yeah. he would say. Go back to the book. I knew the guy that introduced him, by the way, in South Africa. He was in the Peace Corps. He went at, he's one of these guys who was banned in South Africa, a white guy, Ray Berman, and he was an architect, but he was a young student member of that student association that hosted Bobby then. He had escaped to Swaziland where he was in the Peace Corps, and we hung out with him all the time. Huh. It was great. Small point of history. Back <laughs> to, um, to move from Bobby to Ronald Reagan. Um, he, this is what the power of Reagan's victory um, you say every election has twin results. First, the victor is decided. Next, a directional signal for going forward is sent. Not only have the Republicans captured the U.S. Senate at the same time picking up 33 seats in the House, they'd also clearly uh, intimated what was coming next. Get out of the way of this guy 
was the unspoken message that now taunted Democrats who'd held on to their seats. Otherwise, you might find yourself the next victim. I got to say, I read that and I asked, why wasn't it the same for Barack Obama? What well, was it about well, 1980 when you and- Big uh, heavyweights like John Bradamus of Indiana, blown out of their seats. He was a leader of the party in the House, gone. Al Ullman, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, gone. Jim Corman, Ways and Means Committee, heavyweight, gone. So many name people were blown out of their saddles and, and they never saw it coming. And in Pennsylvania, there's a fellow there from Allentown, I forget his name right now, he was blown away too. And I tell you, the names, the, the bold print name Democrats that lost because they didn't know what was gonna happen. And what I think happened, and I talk about that guy voting in D.C., the way he voted with such anger and racing into that room. They wanted to flush the Democrats out of office. They didn't want to just vote against Carter. They wanted to vote against the whole party. You could see that anger, that, that uh, straight line voting. And so uh, Rooney, Fred Rooney. I mean, these guys were getting blown out. They didn't know what, they didn't even go home, some of these guys. They thought they had it locked and they were defeated. So uh, no, I think that sent the message to guys around Tip. I mean, he had to rebuild his leadership. He brought in Tom Foley to replace uh, Bradamus. And I tell you, that scared the heck out of a lot of people. And so everybody around Tip was shivering. We're going to be next. Nobody knew that there was going to be a recession in 81, 82, that Reagan was going to go too far. They didn't know. They thought he was going to be on a winning streak. But in here, well, you're right about Barack Obama. It didn't carry that sense of uh, formidability, that fear factor, which, as you know from Machiavelli, is better than love, to be feared. <laughs> Indeed. It's much better. Um, the, and, and it's best to have both. Um, the, you know who had both? Tim Russert. Oh, that's... Yeah. That, that guy was, was formidable as a leader in our operation. You didn't mess with him, but everybody liked him. How do you do that? Well, that's he, good. And you want to be a leader. He never forgot what he learned in um, uh, politics in Buffalo. Yeah. He did small things Joe for everybody in, in Washington, yeah, I think, D.C. I think it's, uh, and, um, he and he gave, rooted for the Buffalo Bills. Yes. Which, <laughs> if he had rooted for the Yankees, people wouldn't have liked it. No, um, I, I, I'm a Patriots fan, so I used to give him But uh, they win. Oh, yeah. but they Go win. ahead, give the Patriots a... Uh, I thought you the, were a Skins fan. Oh, no, I'm a straight Boston <laughs> fan. Um, you so notice I said is, Skins, not Redskins. What? <laughs> Very Skins a good name, actually. Skin's a good name. I think you it should change it so to So you're unemployed at this point. Uh, you have, uh, um, and I'm George Bailey, so I would give you a loan, but you're unemployed. And what year you're is looking this? around after, we're talking after Reagan. Yeah. Uh, and so, but what, First of all, my how, wife and I got in a car the next morning, and we just drove to Pennsylvania. We, we just got in the car and said, so I've been beaten. I've, we've lost the election. I was Carter's speechwriter, his main political writer. We have just been beaten. And we sort of instinctively just got in the car and just drove up into Pennsylvania, stayed at some motel, and came back the next day. We weren't even sure where we were going. We just had to get out of town in a rush for a day. And uh, we came back, and then that scene, where I'm at. And so tell, talk about how you ended up working for well, it's, one, it's like every job I've ever had, these, you know, this uh, good fortune, serendipity. I mean, I went from working for Frank Moss, who recommended me to Ed Muskie, after I lost that race, he thought, because he had said, you had to dip a little deeper in these political waters. He encouraged me to run. And then, uh, and then I ran for- and then, Who did and, you run against? A guy named Josh Albrecht. He was a machine guy. He wasn't much. In fact, a couple of years later, he got into trouble. He got 78. No, no, he, the machine got that. Don't, don't get confused. In, in Philadelphia, you vote by number. You don't even see the guy's name on the ballot when they pass it out. Vote 82448, just vote this ballot. You know? And the people aren't too what deep. What was your number? <laughs> I wouldn't get a number because I was running against the organization in the primary. I was challenging those guys. And I was so, you, so you end up getting hired by the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC. I was hired to work. to work behind the scenes for TIP. Behind yeah. the, I was to be a behind the scenes consigliere and to help him take on Reagan. And then after doing that for a while, hitting and missing, and finally he, he decided he liked hearing my words and I'd write these one-liners for him. And, and encourage him in a certain direction. In fact, when Reagan took a shot at him and called him, called him a demagogue one time, I was in the room with four or five other guys there. And Tip had come into the outer office of his old time partner, Leo Deal, and he was trying to figure out what to do. Should I attack, attack back or let this, just take it, just take this shot from Reagan. And the old guys were saying, let it go, Tom. Like they called him Tom, let him go, Tom. And I said, 
Even though I wasn't on his payroll, I said, Mr. Speaker, this is the time you have to fight. You can't let this guy take a free shot at you like this and put you away like this. And Kirk O'Donnell was with Kirk was with me. Kirk was always with me, and Kirk was his chief counsel. Introduce people should know Kirk O'Donnell. Kirk was a a very much an intellectual and also a guy who was a street corner pal. He was Mayor Kevin White's uh, guy who set up this little city hall program around the city. A really good political... I've said in the book, I dedicated the book to him, he and Mike Deaver on the other side, and I said he was the best the day of political advisor ever had. Now, nobody's a philosopher much in politics, but if they can tell you what to do that day, <laughs> really good, <laughs> especially when you make a mistake and you need somebody to help you fix it. He knew how to fix it right away. If you get in trouble with Bob Strauss or some big shot, go to the office, sit there, do, go through the bowing and scraping. He would tell you how to do these things. I didn't do it. Actually, I did once. But you know, it's this stuff you what have to you do. Bow and scrape? To Bob Strauss, because yeah. I'd, I'd taken some, I got misquoted, but it didn't do any good to get misquoted, because you're blamed for it. So, uh, as Bill They said, always say they're misquoted. Uh, I know, but it, sometimes <laughs> it's true, actually. And um, as Bill Sapphire, the great speechwriter for Nixon, once said, I've been paranoid, I've been right, and I've been paranoid, and it's better being paranoid. <laughs> so it doesn't do any good to be right. Uh, no, and he knew how to do this stuff. He was just very good at smart stuff. And he's the guy that gave me the idea of political rules. When I wrote Hardball back in 1988, which is a whole handbook about how to survive in politics, it's all based upon the idea of rules. And I started to think, hey, this is a code. Like, you know, keep your enemies in front of you and those kinds of things. And Always uh, be ready to talk. And always be ready to talk was Kirk's. And uh, it's better to receive than to give. It's always better to have somebody do you a favor. (laughs) Oh, it is. This is the mistake young kids are taught when they grow up. Oh, be generous. No, accept help. Always ask for help, because if someone gives you help in getting a job, they will root for you the rest of your life. I got that kid his first job. I gave him something. You want to have people feel that you're indebted to them. It's really important. You've got to think that. I always root for people whom I have helped, and I have gotten help from people who rooted for me. And people people forget. Gratitude can be rare, but people never forget when they did somebody a favor and they help him. So you have to work, this is Machiavelli, I did not think this up, and Machiavelli, when he would study t- uh, towns in, in 500 years ago where they were overrun by the enemy of a prince, and they stayed loyal to the prince, losing their flocks, their, their fields were burnt, but at the end of the year of a, uh, of a long uh, uh, attack, uh, a siege, they would be more loyal to the prince than at the beginning of the year, and that's when Machiavelli figured out, it's the more you give, the more invest you. That's why parents are so invested in their kids, because they've done, they've done everything for them. And why a secretary works for a boss for 30 years will be more invested in him than he'll ever be grateful because it's investment, it's human investment. It's the basic idea of, well, I'm teaching politics here, but it's, if, you don't, if, you, if a kid forgets this and goes off at the age of 22 looking for a job and says, I don't need anybody's help, I'm gonna do it on my own, big freaking mistake. Always ask for help. Everybody. Always ask for help. And if you're a minority, I always say to people, if you're a minority or a woman, you feel like you're being prejudiced against, never say no to yourself. Make them say no. You have to go and ask as if there'll be no prejudice at all against you. And then when they turn you down, it's entirely their fault. Everybody up here, I want you to come up after and ask him for help. Uh, and uh, I have certain, you can say you learned the lesson I from have Chris certain, I have certain skills, the, but mainly for watching them. Well, you know, you, you raised hardball, and I, I was going to wait a little on this, but I wanted to get right into it because one of the sort of tensions in this book for me uh, is, you know, you cast it as when politics worked, you know, the subtitle, when, yeah, when politics worked. And the implication is, well, Tip and Reagan got these things done together. But what really struck me about the book was it was real hardball at the beginning, and things didn't really work until first Reagan had really smashed up yeah. Tip O'Neill, and then Tip O'Neill came roaring back and smashed up Ronald Reagan. Well, I think- and only then were the big deals made, except for the one on the, you know, Tefra on the tax increase, which is what Tip O'Neill wanted to do anyway. But talk about well, that okay, period. Okay, I, th- I think when you, uh, it, to me it's like Marcus of Queensbury rules. I mean, Muhammad Ali was the greatest fighter in history by the rules. He wasn't one of these extreme, crazy things you watch on television now on Channel 400. He wasn't one of those guys. He fought by the rules. No punching below the belt. When the bell goes off, you stop punching. You keep your dukes up. Everything is by the rules. They fought by the rules. And so, yes, they went at it. But Tip honored the honeymoon idea for the, when the president first gets in, you give him his vote. He didn't use any tricks. He could have pulled a few tricks. He didn't do it. Let him have his vote. And, and when it got tricky there in, 2000, in 1982, 
when they had a deficit higher than Reagan wanted it to be, and he was basically unable to get it through his own Republican caucus in the Congress, he went to O'Neill and said, hey, how about this tax increase? And they go, okay, let's do it. Tip could have stood back and said, let him fall. He could have said, go ahead, you're gonna take a beating on this big deficit, I'm not gonna help you. He could have said to Reagan and Social Security, this is a good issue for us, we're gonna keep it. I think they basically agreed that, to me it wasn't so much they were Irish, it was that they were the same age. Guys in their 70s, and they're still working, no, and women too, this is their big act. This is the one where they have to produce. And positioning and posturing and speeches aren't gonna do it. They have to get the job done. And so I think they had that urgency of life built into them. Reagan had to get it done, Tip had to get it done, and so they had dealt on Social Security, on, on uh, tax reform, on that, that big bill, on, on Ireland, Northern Ireland, and on the Soviet Union, and in the Cold War. But Tip had just, to help him because he knew but, this was the big game. But you didn't get they to did that fight. point until first comes the Reagan budget, but, but because where it was Tip clearly, loses 63 right, but Democrats. But he was in charge. Then, and then it, there comes the tax cut. Because he and, was in charge for that first year. I had the sense from your book that Tip O'Neill, I mean, he didn't want to lose those votes, but he was clearly playing a kind of rope-a-dope. He yeah. knew he was going to lose those votes. And that the only way back for him was to let Reagan get his program and then to beat him in 82, which is what he did. This is, is, it's right in the book, I think, that he knew that the only way to make Reagan a, victor, a victim was to make him responsible. And until Reagan had his program accepted, you couldn't blame him for anything. But once Reagan had the tax cuts, the defense hikes, the domestic spending cuts, and then the recession came, he would be blamed for that. And Tip wanted to make sure that Democrats weren't blamed for foot dragging. Now, go to, to that. But you're right about the well, larger issue. It wasn't until when Reagan was the big shot and the smart lobbyist. I talk about how he lobbied the Hill brilliantly, went to the gym, dinner, did all that stuff. As long as he was the boss, Tip had no, no hand to play. It was only when Reagan went too far that Tip said, now I can play my hand. And he backed him on the, on the tax bill in 82, went after him on Social Security again right before the election, and basically won the 26 seats. And once he won those 26 seats back of the 33, they were pretty much even Stephen then. And that's when they could negotiate. And that's sort of like in a bullfight. It got to be even enough that they could start fighting with each other. There were some underhanded, not big underhanded things, but little underhanded things that you described. For example, uh, they, they, they set up a negotiation between Reagan and O'Neill and first, uh, I think, and I think it was you, you were talking to Jim Baker, and Baker says no staff. And finally, you look at you know, just O'Neill and Reagan, and you said, wait a minute, your staff. And Jim Baker, and, and you, Jim and Baker, Baker said there was should such be, a Mandarin that he didn't realize Jim Baker said staff. there was going to be a meeting of the president to try to work out the budget deal, and they were just going to have their big shots in the room. And, and Tip always relied on R.E. Weiss, a young guy, a very observant Jewish kid. And he was very observant to the point where Tip had to go to his hotel room to prepare for things. He wouldn't, because R.E. Wouldn't, wouldn't go anywhere on, on, on Saturdays. So, but this guy was a genius. He sat right next to me, and every day, by 8.30 or quarter to nine in the morning, he knew everything on the Hill that was happening in one or two phone calls. I do not know how I, to this day, I don't know how he did it. And he, uh, he, he uh, Tip relied on him for numbers. Tip didn't know any of these numbers all this budget stuff. He wasn't going to do arithmetic. But if Ari is with him, he could do anything. So he said, I'm bringing Ari. So I called up Jim Baker and I said, there's a big budget deal coming on. You guys are going to negotiate the, uh, your fights with Reagan. Uh, I'm going to, Tip wants to bring Ari. And he said, no staff. And I did pause and said to the great Mandarin Jim Baker, your staff. <laughs> and he said, let's be gentlemen about this. <laughs> but Tip brought, Tip brought Ari to the meeting. And you know how they countered? They brought Stockman. They had the budget. And they brought uh, uh, Don Regan, the, the Treasury Secretary, to match little Ari Weiss. It was funny. They brought these big guys in to match him. And you got wind that the Reagan people were already leaking to the press while this was going on. Leslie that the Stahl Democrats wanted to cut Social Security. Tell that story. Well, Leslie Stahl. Again, I, I am really struck. There is a certain niceness that existed then, but the other side is they were pretty tough back then, I know. too. Well, they were having this big meeting on Capitol Hill to try to deal with the budget deficit. And somebody on the other side, I know the guy's name, he's a friend of mine, I won't mention his name, was passing the word to the press that- It's just that it's a secret, word, yeah, just, yeah, that the, the, the Democrats were, were wanted to cut Social Security, which I thought was ludicrous. The Republicans always want to cut Social Security. And so they were passing the word that the Democrats had a plan on the table. And I found out when I told Tip this, when he came out for, the, for a break, I said, he told me, oh yeah, they put a piece of the paper on the table called the Boeing proposal. They actually did try to snooker the Democrats into going with a budget cut with their name on it, with a, with a Social Security cut. And Leslie said, they're doing it. So I warned that speaker, this is what's going on. So he basically said the Reagan in the meeting. And I got the whole back and forth. 
Are you calling for a cut in Social Security benefits, Mr. President? And Reagan's, oh, no, I understand this is coming from the Congress, these ideas. <laughs> and, uh, and Tip says, well, if you're not, we're not. It was one of those things, and that's where Reagan said he could crap the uh, pineapple, but not the cactus. <laughs> the, <laughs> the way uh, guys talk. The, uh, yeah, there were a bunch of things here that I was uh, some thinking of the language, about. Raising. Some of the language in the it's book. It's always quotable. It's not, um, <laughs> not me. The, um, yeah, there was a certain word that Tip started using after you started working <laughs> for him, but we'll leave that there. Um, um, when he got in a bad mood, he had the same lexicon as most people in a bad mood. It's never original. The, uh, no one in this audience. Um, you say something interesting that uh, I, I want to sort of take it to, in a way, what you've done uh, for the last several years. Um, that's how it was in those days when the news cycle was more leisurely. Before the incessant real-time jamboree of cable, <laughs> hardball included, uh, Limbaugh and social media. Are you involved in a jamboree? Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, not I mean, like in the Boy about, Scouts. What you, talk not about, like in the Boy Scouts. What? Not like in the Boy Scouts jamboree. The, talk about the role that the change in the media has played in, and your part in it. And well, what let me just is, tell you, uh, like Rush Limbaugh today uh, referred, uh, or the other day said that the Pope was a Marxist. And uh, because he's talking about the poor, he should check the New Testament and read that. The Gospel of Matthew might be, uh, might be helpful. I mean, Jesus, our Lord, was very, uh, very he was concerned. Poor, poor, he looked up, what do you do my... for the least of my you know, people? You do for me. I mean, it was all about that. And hanging out with, he never hung out with the rich. He hung out with the poor people. And he... Uh, his Actually, he did hang out with the rich, but he asked them to help, told them they Well, it's harder the to get through the, to you know, the, the camel through the eye of a needle. Uh, the, it was just one of the gates to the old city. And uh, um, yeah, I think, I think that Limbaugh has powered, which I always say to myself and say to the public when I'm asked about this, I say I'm not a media critic because I don't, I, don't like, I don't like baseball players who make fun of other baseball players. I just don't think that looks right. I mean, they're competitors. So if you make fun of them, you're really not competing. You're making fun of them. Uh, but I do think Limbaugh is the only person in the media, who is more powerful than most politicians, who actually dictates to them what to say. They are, if they go after him, if, if, if they ever criticize Limbaugh, they have to apologize within 48 hours. And I've watched it. Over, they have to grovel, and he makes them grovel. And so I think that's power that people like me simply don't have. I know Riley doesn't have, and certainly uh, Sean and the rest don't have, but he has it. And it's going to be interesting to watch how long he's going to be able to hang out there with his theory that the, pre, that the Pope, the he's Holy Father, is a Marxist, and not only a Marxist, but a puppet because he's got people around him writing his stuff, these Marxists around, these commies, telling him what to say. I mean, it's so ludicrous. If Rush Bo can get away with this, he can get away with anything. And then he is truly frightening. See, one of my favorite things in this papal statement is he criticizes sourpusses. And I great? love a pope who criticizes I, yeah, I sourpusses. That's why I love your column. And that's why, that's why Rush column. didn't like him, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I, uh, um, I, I think I've rushed one Bison. moment. I know it's not your style, but one moment of self-reflection and self-criticism. Talk about, uh, you know, when you look back on what's happened in, and I'm part. I I've been doing this for toast. 20 years, so whatever happens, been happening because of me for 20 years. Come on, I've been on live television since 1994 every night at least for an hour, and uh, I, I, I have basically been me and. Uh, I love politics. I'm passionate about the country. If anybody, biggest, I have a throw up my leg, I get excited about things. I'm like a <laughs> lightning bug. I love it. And I love self-government. Self and I root for it. And uh, I, I think I'm a positive force. If somebody criticizes me, that's fine. They're entitled. But I have a great audience that's loyal to me. And uh, they watch. And they watch every night. <laughs> and, um, but I do, I look, I, do, I don't dislike people like O'Reilly because I think he's a real self-creation. Um, I, th I think other guys aren't as creative. And certainly Limbaugh has a lot of followers and imitators, but I think he's original. I think he's bad. <laughs> I think that's obvious. But uh, I, I think he says things about ethnic groups and black people and stuff that's terrible. I think we have to just, that's off the table for me. You know, we've been all through that, our history, you know. Uh, when you go back 250 years of slavery followed by 100 years of Jim Crow and this thing since hasn't exactly been a cakewalk for black people. And, yeah, amen. Uh, and, and I think that the people that still blame them for our problems just missing the boat. It's not that it's not true and it's not even any nothing simple like that anyway, but they just blame them like there's something wrong with them. And it's just it, this is this Limbaugh playing to that stuff is bad. It's just bad. Now, 
going back to the book and Reagan and Tip, I get a feeling there's a, a you have a, clearly a richer sense of Tip than of Reagan because you work for him, you knew him intimately. But I did a lot of homework but on Reagan. Is, oh, you do a lot of research, but I, you know there is, I think, something terribly elusive about Reagan, even to people who've researched him. Could you talk Edmund about Morris that? Edmund Morris went and, out and tried to write about him and couldn't meet him. Right. Uh, he was a very complicated guy. He met. He went to his high school, the graduation of his son Michael, and said hello to him and, and said congratulations. And Michael said, "It's me, Dad." <laughs> yeah. How sad that is. Uh, he didn't know his HUD secretary. People were interchangeable to him. When Mike Deaver was sacked by John Sears in the first run-up to the campaign, he let him go. Lifelong guy that I dedicated the book to. A total, you know, apostle of Reagan, just let him go. He saw people as interchangeable. When they came to him and Baker and Deaver came to him and said, why don't we let Reagan be your chief of state? He said, sure. Until he realized the hell that he got because he, got, he didn't get a good guy, a Mandarin, who was going to look out for him. And so he was very impersonal. Uh, the kids will tell you that. I mean, Ron is a friend of mine. He's on the show all the time. Said that when my dad, you got the sense when I walked out of the room, I ceased being of any focus of my father, that he never would think about me when I wasn't there. Pretty scary. Because most parents exude that interest in their kids. Let the kids know they're, if anything, too much helicopters. They're too much hanging over them. They're thinking about them too much. They can feel them thinking about them. And he, and he, and he, and he, uh, they know right now that we're thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and yet Reagan was a, but yet he was a great swimmer. And he taught his son to be, by Ron is one of the most amazing swimmers in the world. I've never, it's a certain thing his father taught him. And they worked close in that father-son way uh, in sports and stuff. Uh, but Reagan, Tip on the other hand, knew everybody, as you know, knew everybody's sicknesses, who went to school, who didn't, where to school, where did they go to school, who was, everything about a person. I don't know how he knew all this. Reagan knew none of that. But Reagan knew how to talk to the American people in a way that nobody else has ever been able to do. He could just start talking like here with a microphone and a camera, and the guy in Milwaukee working on the line somewhere said he's talking to me. That was a skill or an ability. I don't even know where. It may have come from years and years of traveling the country by rail and meeting with GE people, meeting with middle, middle people. And you know, when but you somehow he could talk to America. That, Tip couldn't talk to America. No, but, and that was a fascinating thing because when Tip most got under his skin, Reagan's skin, it was when he challenged him on the effect of his policies on working people. Exactly. He called it a Beverly Hills budget. That was and my line. <laughs> I was the wise guy. Well, let me tell you what I think is at work here. If anybody here is Catholic, you'll know what I'm talking about. And you probably don't have to be Catholic to get this. There's such a thing as, well, Notre Dame. Let's just call it Notre Dame. It ain't complicated. I was rooting for him again this week. And somebody said, well, that's kind of, my sister-in-law said, what are you, that's kind of yesterday. I said, no, I will always root for Notre Dame. That's what I do. And uh, I got to Holy Cross. Kid. I went to Holy Cross, but they never played. They weren't in the same league. But uh, what you do is, as a kid, you, you listen to the radio and you root for Notre Dame against Syracuse just because it's Notre Dame. And when you're at school at St. Christopher's, where I went to school, Sister Mercy Nuns, you, they stopped the school one day and showed the Newt, Newt Rockney movie with Pat O'Brien because this is part of our orientation as Catholics. My uncle, my uncle Charlie, my uncle it's Charlie a, and Aunt Kathleen. You were born remember, forever in hell if you do well, not root for Notre uh, Dame. Uh, the, you, you did go to Harvard. Huh? You know, you, you, I see the problem here. Well, that's not a, <laughs> I, I see the problem. No, uh, my Uncle Charlie and Aunt Kathleen. Notice how often he mentions that? Got married because they're members of the Notre Dame Club of Philadelphia. They didn't go to college. They're members of the Subway alumni. And all across the country, the Subway alumni are people that root for Notre Dame because they're Catholic, Irish, Polish, Italian, whatever. And they just root for Notre Dame because it's our team against the big Protestant country. This is us fighting for who we are. And this is the same way it's been since, there's a quarter of a million people in South Bend, Indiana, when that movie was premiered. And it Reagan, made Reagan the Gipper. And Reagan knew that Gipper title meant a lot. See, and so when he, he campaigned, not, he, he was Dutch before that, but he was, it was his nickname. <laughs> then he became the Gipper. Let me tell you what this book's about, really. It's the battle over that group of working, middle-class Catholics that decide every election. Jewish voters tend to be liberal Democrats, tend to be, that's a generalization. African-Americans tend to be Democrats. Wasps, Protestants, white Protestants tend to be Demo Republican. But the group that moves back and forth every couple of elections, they went for Ike, they went for Reagan, they went against McGovern, not for, they tended to split in favor of the Clintons. 
They, they are a very powerful group. And, and Reagan grabbed them by the scruff of the neck at that speech before, before the Statue of Liberty and said, the Democratic Party has let you down, that Labor Day speech. My wife and I went into a bar in Georgetown to watch that one night because we were checking how my speech had gone over that day. I wrote for Carter. And, got and no I saw him do all. that. And I saw him give that speech and said, this guy's up to something big time. The Gipper is taking back the subway alumni for the Democrats and from FDR. And that's why I opened the book with FDR saying, there's nothing I like more than a good fight because that's what it's about, the battle over that group of voters. Now, a lot of elite people don't get this, and they're missing something big in American politics. The See, subway alumni the became the Reagan Democrats, and that is the profound news of that election. The, the tonight that that came clear to me was the acceptance speech that he gave in 1980. And I was then living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and there weren't a lot of Reagan voters there. Yeah. And I was watching that speech with friends, and I said, I think this guy is going to win. And the words that were the Catholic words, but also to a lot of other people. He, family, work, neighborhood, yeah. peace, and freedom. And it so was smart. directly aimed at the, those voters, the people I grew up with. And Why can't Democrats talk like that? Why do they move the Vatican Embassy? Been, Why do they been, keep doing these things and argue over, uh, I don't know, I, I just think they, they ignore the big Catholic vote they ought to be focused on. Clinton, I'm talking pure Clinton politics here. Talked, Clinton talked like that. The Kennedys yeah. talked like Work that. Work hard and play by the rules, yes, and abortion will be safe, legal, and, and rare. rare. They knew exactly our number, yeah. didn't they? And it, and it worked. Yeah. Um, the, but let's go back to O'Neill and Reagan. Because the other side of Reagan being elusive is, I couldn't tell from your book if Tip really liked him. Because it was part one. of me okay. that really listened to Tip you in book your well. book. And I thought, actually, he didn't like the guy. He was full of Irish blarney. He said all these good things because he knew he was he supposed to He could never get over him, the fact. Because he, 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 he wasn't mean. And so there's an ambiguity here. Well, let me tell you what the ambiguity, how I got, it, got over it. First of all, Reagan really liked Tip. He just thought he was the classic old Irish. He was Pat O'Brien. Pat O'Brien got Reagan his job in a Newt Newt Romney movie because it, in Warner Brothers studio, they had the commissary every day. He went to work, the actors. And there was a table the Irish owned. And that was run by Pat O'Brien. He was like the biggest shot. You know, back in the 30s when people talk fast in the movies, get me rewrite, all that stuff, front page. He was the guy that decided who sat at the table. Spencer Tracy, a few non-Catholics like Bogart. Well, Bogart may have been Catholic. They let them all sit at the table. He invited Reagan to sit at the table. Not only did he invite him, he got on the job of that movie. Anyway, through Jack Warner, because he said he could play football. The other guys wouldn't know a football from a cantaloupe, he said. <laughs> so, um, so, so Reagan wasn't really Irish. He just played one. Oh, no, he was Irish. He was, they, they, by the way, he used to, when he was out of work before he got GE Theater, he was out in Vegas. He was the guy in Vegas who went out there as the MC and just told Irish jokes with an accent. That was his job, telling Irish jokes. But that's and a, by the way, some people think he was the actual guy in The Godfather, the first guy that was brought out to Vegas, to Vegas and actually become the first name person to go in there and entertain out there. They're trying to get the people back with a mob around those places out there. They're trying to get, about to get those stars out there to bring the money people in, the high rollers. Anyway, that's, that's a, a theory, not mine. You can see in this book, by the way, his utter obsession with Hollywood. That really, <laughs> re, I mean, it's movie after movie. He's doing this as second best because he wanted to be the Gipper. No, uh, I just, uh, well, I know all this stuff. That's, all. Um, <laughs> that's what we do. I, I did think, no, I think Reagan, I think, Reagan no, I, 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 before I filed my copy there for my final draft, I had all, I called all four of the O'Neill kids, and you know some of them. And I had, now what was Tip's, I think I had a conference call. What, what was Tip's feeling towards Reagan? And I want this right from you kids who knew it from home, just like Ron Reagan heard it at home. He said how much Tip was, Reagan was fond of Tip because he said it around the house. So that's what matters. What do you say around the house? Now, uh, Susan, is the most positive. They were friends. And she points to all the examples of why they were real friends. Uh, Tommy, who was the politician, who was Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts, he said uh, they were frenemies, meaning they were friendly foes, okay? Uh, Kip was the toughest guy. I always called him the pit boss because he was always watching the dealers like me. And he was always keeping an eye on his on me. He was keeping on them. Exactly. He was the tough one. He, was, he, was, he liked the way the book came out. He thought the book was right. So... Rosemary was so religious and so serious and black Irish in many ways that you couldn't get it out of her. She just wouldn't commit. But I, did, I called them the Supreme Court, <laughs> the O'Neill kids, because uh, I wanted to get it right. My view of Reagan was, I mean, if the speaker, I knew the speaker. I knew the guy. And I think he could never get over, just objectively, he could never get over the fact that Reagan was cutting programs for the poor. 
And he, he could like a guy, but if I say this, if they were both, if Reagan was a Democratic fundraiser and speaker like he was all the way through the early 50s, they would have been best buddies. They would have, like, he would have been buddies with him like he was with Lou Wasserman and people like that, you know. They would have had a great time. But uh, uh, no, he couldn't get over the fact that Reagan was cutting programs that he knew the people were hurting from. When Tip thought about Pell Grants, for example, he thought about the working kid from North Cambridge who wanted to go to BC but didn't have the mother's, the parents didn't have the tuition. And he, wanted to, he knew the kid had the smarts to go there. And he wouldn't go to college because of the, no Pell Grants. So and every time a program like that was cut or something to do with Social Security survivors' benefits. Now Reagan, when Tip would come into it and say, wait a minute, this is causing this girl to lose her, her money for school, Reagan would get somebody in there like Ed Mace, come in here and write a check. Reagan would deal with it on the spot, right. but that would be a point defense. He wouldn't see, and as Ron said, and I got this from Ron's book actually, he actually wrote it out, my father could not see the general in these situations. He couldn't see that these program cuts hurt all kinds of people. He could sympathize. This really bothered the speaker. I'm telling you. Anyway, I'm sitting across the table with one time. He's going through all this mail, this sad mail from people losing because of the cuts. And he looked at me and he goes, you're a Holy Cross conservative. You know, because he, he knew I wasn't as em, em, you know, empathetic as he was. He could tell because he was, a, he was not only a, he was a depression guy. He grew up in hard times. And he has spent his whole life dealing with people's problems up there. And so he really felt for them as individuals. I didn't live a life like that. I was a typical middle class guy. I didn't have these problems. And he had them. And so, you know, we were different that way. But he was tough. You know, I said there was three Tip O'Neill's. One was Santa Claus. Every time I went to him with a request, it was yes. Every time. I got a brother-in-law. He needs a job working on the hill. I got a, a nephew. I got somebody else. It was always yes, yes, yes. I mean, it was anything for me. But then there was another part of him that was black Irish, like somebody's screwing me here. Somebody's cheating me. Somebody's taking it away from me. That, that, that black Irish thing of somebody's getting ahead and I'm not, he had that too. And then he had the third personality which saved his life, which was he was a pure politician. And he knew what he believed politically. And that guy was always in, co in coalition with the Santa Claus. Against so the I, black Irish. So in other words, Tip always did the right thing as far as I could tell. But he always had the other part that, that did like to hang around with some guys like Leo and you know, Jimmy Rowan and people that were, the guys are always calling people bad names. And so he didn't mind the company of the black or Irish, the guys that had that dark begrudger thing going. Talk about you know what I'm the talking time, about. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Talk about the time you got in trouble uh, when oh. you did the New Republic piece and then somehow all these articles started appearing in the papers about uh, how important Chris yeah. Matthews well, was. Well, you should never, Kirk O'Donnell <laughs> again with a big role, which was timing is everything. Don't get too famous while you're working for somebody. And then somebody wrote an article. Uh, the article wasn't too bad, but it was bad enough. But the lead was, some editor had written, everyone in Washington who knows anybody, who knows anything, knows how Chris Matthews guides the Speaker of the House. I wrote in the book, where do I hide? <laughs> because you don't ever want your boss to think you're taking credit for their big decisions. So Tip pulled me in. I got 11 copies of this magazine. <laughs> I got more brains. You think you make the calls around here? This is all in the book. He said, I got more brains than half my ass you got in your whole body. <laughs> and this guy is 6'3", as tall as me, and he's right looking at me, weighing 300 pounds, looking at me right in the eye. I'm telling you, I was this far apart from him. And he was tough. And I, I got through that. That was in. 84 in the spring, and we had good times after that, the next two and a half years. But I remember I got something put in a, in a paper about how he uh, I sort of softened with a blow on that thing. And I sat in the back room with him. I said, look at this. I got this in the paper. And he said, don't worry about it. How so long he, he was it quick last? to forget. How long would a thing like that last with Tip? Pretty short. Well, depends. I had the feeling when there was a bad piece written about him uh, up in the, in the Parade magazine, when it was a big, thick magazine. And there's a piece saying uh, he was basically going to, uh, Dotson Rader wrote it. It was different than most guys he deals with. And Dotson wrote it, and uh, I had encouraged him to do the interview. And Dotson, just, because he'd always written good stuff about the Kennedys, I thought he'd write something nice about Tip. He just killed him. He said he's finished and everything. I got the feeling the family would keep that on the tea table every weekend so Tip could come home and see it. Because <laughs> Monday mornings, he was particularly in a bad mood. <laughs> I said, he's looking at that parade magazine again. The best thing to do when you get bad publicity, Throw it out. It's a great tonic. Just get rid of it physically. It's amazing how that disappears. No, because nobody else will remember it anyway. People think the bad publicity hurts you. Most of the time people forget it. So. 
when you, you have a list of lessons at the end of this thing about why that time worked, and again, I come away thinking, on the one hand, yeah, they, there were not the kind of Republicans who blocked everything. And, and in a way, I felt that one of the big differences was the kind of Republicans. That's changed. When you got Bob Dole writing the bill to raise taxes, $99 billion, not $100 billion, because that would sound Bargain bad. Basement. $99 billion, uh, to start getting us out of the deficit when you had 80, uh, 103 Republicans voting for that tax increase, partly because Reagan blessed it, um, none of that would happen now. The difference between then and now, and I think it's George Bush raising taxes after he promised not to, and all the grief he took, and, and so many son, Republicans. And his son are not vetoing any spending bills. Right. And, and they, they bring in a pretty much a common sense but conservative. But no Republican wanted to raise taxes after that. But yeah. Talk about the difference in the That's Republican true. Party back then, because I think that is a significant part of the difference. Well, I'm, I'm, I always say when we were putting our shows together, especially I said, never say anything against Republicans ever, even though our show sort of leans to the liberal side, obviously. <laughs> did, did I break news? Did, did I break it? I thought there? it leaned forward. Lean forward. Well, I, my show <laughs> leans to the liberal side, because it's me. Um, I, I think the Republican Party that I grew up in Pennsylvania with, with people like Scranton and uh, Tom Ridge and Hugh Scott and, and Christy Whitman from New Jersey and, and all those, there Ed was always Brooke, a Republican senator from Mike Massachusetts Mathias. and always Republican, and Salt and Stall, and all the way through, you know, Javits was probably the most brilliant of senators in history and all these guys, Clifford Case, and every Northeastern state had a, at least one Republican, maybe two. Uh, the, the Civil Rights Bill, I've just been reading a, a book on that and it's a one, Todd Purdom's great book that's coming out. I did a, a blurb for it. it is, you just cry reading about how great these guys were. I get emotional reading about Bill McCullough and Charlie Halleck and Everett Dirks, Everett Dirksen. These middle-of-the-road Republicans were not big black constituencies. There's no votes for it in them, for them politically. These guys stuck their necks out for civil rights back in 64 because, as one guy, Bill McCullough, said, it's the right thing to do. He said, the Kennedys don't understand why we're for civil rights because it's the right thing to do. It is not mixed in with politics like it was with Jack Kennedy. It was something they believed in. And now the Republican Party's been taken over by the South, of course. But back then, the South was 22 guaranteed segregationist votes in the United States Senate. Those days are gone. But the Republican Party that was for civil rights and, you know, for the interstate highway system and all this stuff and fighting the Cold War, it was an admirable party. And, uh, and unfortunately, the, the Southern strategy after the 64 Civil Rights Bill went the direction it shouldn't have gone. It went basically deep south in its politics, and it lost its uh, Lincoln-esque uh, value. And, and that's I, a fact. And when I think about it that... It could come back. Why? Well, I hope it comes back. I think back. Christie could bring it back. I think, I think that people like Walker are sort of regular conservatives. I don't think they're all Tea Party people. I think you're going to see... Uh, Although they are much, there is John no Kasich. way you can mention them in the same breath that you mentioned those old no, they're Republicans. Not, they're, they're not still as grand. very conservative. They're not as and grand. that's what I wanted to ask you about, Reagan. By the way, I, there was supposed to be a time on this, and I cannot see the person with the time. Uh, so you tell me. Uh, I, the, uh, oh, three, three minutes. Oh, I, so I... <laughs> Fortunately, they can cut that out of the TV show, so I'll go four minutes to give you the extra. Do you think it's minutes? Uh, what? Do you think it's, it's minutes? It's, I, I don't Maybe think it's I... three seconds. Okay. Um, the, you're looking at Reagan and this transformation, and he was indeed the guy who got the Republican Party to move in this direction. Yet you read this Reagan, you read about the Reagan then, and you say, Reagan would be well to the left of where the okay, party let's is now, except you wonder, hey, when Reagan was out of power, he sounded like Ted Cruz. He wanted to privatize Big difference. social security. Big difference between guys or politicians who become governors is a wonderful, uh, informing experience. You begin to deal with legislators from, legislators from the other side. You have to deal with them. You have to balance the budget in states. You become a grown-up politically. I always like to see governors run for president. Ronald Reagan was not the pamphleteer he was as governor, and he was not the pamphleteer he was as president. As president, he was very practical. He was the guy that dearly did. A lot of other work went on it before, from Kennedy all the way back to Harry Truman, ending the Cold War, or fighting and ending it without war, which is the key, fighting the Cold War without a war, uh, a nuclear war. 
But Reagan really did that. And when he saw Gorbachev, I'm telling you, I don't think George Sr. Bush would have done that. He looked at the guy and said, this is not Molotov. This is not the old Soviet Union. And instinctively knew the deal was there. And he cut it. And I think that that's separated Reagan. Do you think some of these, you know, these bomb throwers today would want to cut a deal with Iran? It's just the opposite. Reagan would be in looking fact, for a deal Tim with Iran. In fact, thought he looked like a New York lawyer, as no, I remember. Just, he thought he didn't there trust, was the ethnic he didn't piece trust Gorbachev. He, he, didn't, he didn't go for him, but he went over there and told Gorbachev two things. One, Reagan's our president. He speaks for all of us. Before Reagan even got over there. Two, he delivered a note from Reagan saying he wants to meet. And third, he basically said, this guy, we've disagreed over MD, uh, uh, SDI, Star Wars, we've disagreed over MX. But this guy's serious about wanting to reduce nuclear weapons. And then when Reagan went over and met with him in Geneva later that year, he called off the dogs. He said, no more discussions of defense cuts while this guy's over there. I want Reagan to be able to pick up the check. That's what he said to his guys. And then later on, when he met in Reykjavik, Tip called in Markey, our friend Ed Markey, and brought in Ron Delms and said, uh, you got to stop this freeze vote because it's going to embarrass the president before he meets in Reykjavik. Tip was always backing up Reagan as compared to what's going on now with Iran. These guys like Menendez, Bob Menendez are all trying to undercut the president, what he's doing with Iran. That's not a healthy way to conduct foreign and there policy. Was one place we we the should book. have one voice. One voice. And there was one place in the book where uh, you think, and I think, wish that Tip O'Neill had spoken up more strongly. I, I was particularly taken by the Lebanon part when our troops were there, because I was actually in Lebanon at that point. And I'll never forget that the military guys let us go in, and I, I wrote a long piece quoting the guys on the ground in September of 83. Were you basically, at the Times then? I was at the Times then. Yeah. And they were basically saying that they were sitting ducks. And I realized oh, yeah. that the military, those guys on the ground were sending a message through us back to Washington yeah. saying, what in the heck have you put us in the middle Chip of. Chip didn't know that, and, and Reagan that, didn't know that. He called it, you know, they called that neighborhood they were stuck in at the airport Comeniville. They right. knew it was, it was overrun with Islamists. And I remember after that, Tip says, I can't believe it was terrorism. We didn't know it was be terror. They didn't know what terrorism was then. And Reagan thought it was guys in uniforms coming at you. know, it's guys in the night with the, you know, the bomber, the car bomber uh, it, it coming. It was the most depressing it thing. It is depressing. And he stuck with the, him out of loyalty to Reagan, and he stuck with him because Tip had this view about Lebanese people. He thought that Lebanon was like Europe. It was one of us sort of thing. And you fight for us. You don't give like, it away. There are a lot of Lebanese in Massachusetts. Yeah, and you don't give it away. And he did stick with Reagan right to the end. And uh, it was, uh, I, so I wrote in the book, it's the one time he stuck with Reagan that it hurt. And he hated being in that position. And did he have second thoughts about it after? Well, he, he probably felt terrible that we had backroom arguments about it, you know. He wanted to know who in the room was against putting our troops in there. And Kirk O'Donnell nicely said to him, as the three of us are sitting there, well, Chris was always against putting the troops. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kirk. But uh, Tip so, didn't want to hear that, I'll tell you. But uh, he was generally... Uh, he picked his fights. He always fought over Central America. He thought Reagan wanted to take us into Central America and fight the Sandinistas. And he was always afraid that it was going to be us, you know, defending the interests of the United Fruit Company. And, and he saw it as an old imperialism he didn't like the looks of. So I want to close by asking you this. What um, did you ever have uh, after that first congressional race? You were tempted back in one last time. And yeah. I'd like you to talk a bit about sort of the way you look at um, your life, both as a potential inside player, uh, where you were inside as a staff guy, but as a politician versus what you do yeah. now, and how you sort of sort out those roles and your attraction to them. Well, there's nothing I like more than being on the show, Hardball. I mean, when I'm doing it Mondays, Beginning of the week when I'm full of energy and I get on there at the A block, I can't be stopped. And then no, then I know. <laughs> you can't even give an answer, you know? <laughs> By Friday, the E block, you know, quarter to eight, I'm wearing down. But uh, I like that because journalism is like that. You file the big story Friday night. I used to do it in print for the San Francisco papers. And I, I just love what I do. Here's my thing, and I'll be honest about it. If I were a U.S. senator, which I'd love to be, of course. It's an honor beyond belief. But if I were, like, appointed or something, like uh, some guys have been, you know, <laughs> how it happens, you know. I'm just being yeah, speculative thing. here. Uh, you, uh, I'd, be my, I'd, be, I'd get a call Sunday night from, say, the mayor of Erie. And the mayor of Erie would be saying, 
God, I got to talk to Chris. I'll be down this week. I'll be most of the week down. I got this sewer problem. I'm trying to get some help from appropriations. I got, what's his name working on it? I'll be there all week. Can we go to dinner Tuesday night? And early, can you help me with this? And I'm thinking, damn it. I wanted to write an op-ed this week. You know, I wanted to write another chapter of my book this week. Why do I have to do this? Because, because he I read signed on to do it. And he knew he had to ask you for something. Yeah, no, yeah, that's true. <laughs> You're so smart. You're, but I, I, do I really want to be the guy that's the lobbyist for a state, which is the job? It is the job. You can be like Pat Monahan, the great intellectual of New York, and he would hide at Bellarmine's, you know, at the Carlisle, and they'd be thinking he was up in Buffalo somewhere. <laughs> he once said to Joe Lieberman, your state's not big enough to hide in. You've got to be able to think you're somewhere else. But Pennsylvania would want to know where you were. How come you're not coming home every weekend? How come you're not up at our picnic? And, and the guy who was going to run against our inspector was at every picnic, every day of the week, everywhere in the state. He'd do 67 counties. He never stopped. You know, he said they're going to carry me out of this even in a, either in a box or a ballot box. But I'm not quitting. So I don't want to go run against him because he would have attacked me and I didn't want to attack him. I don't want to spend every day of my life raising money so I attack a guy I didn't want to attack. I had nothing against our inspector. He loved the Senate. I love the Senate. I want his job. I'm not going to kill somebody to do that. It's stupid. It's a stupid waste of time. I love what I do. And, uh, I but anyway, I you know, as I said, if they offered it to me. <laughs> <laughs> he'd take it. I know he'd take it. I love Paul. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I, I my, like what I do. My favorite. They might. No, never mind. Well, one of the things we share in common is a love of politics all the way down, all the way down to the precinct level. Uh, all Vincent the way down Gray's to, running for mayor of D.C. Do I, you I, believe it? I, I can't believe it. It's all about chutzpah. He might win, too. Yeah, I think he, he will. It's all about chutzpah. But the, my favorite line on politics is for Mike Sandel, the philosopher. He said, when politics goes well, we can know a good in common that we cannot know alone. Uh, and I think that's what Chris's book is about. Occasionally, that's what Hardball is about. And that's what you all are about. So thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you. Thank you.